This is part one of a two-part conversation with researcher and writer Mita on COVID-19 and Indonesia. In part one, we'll mostly look at Indonesia through the perspective of its government and economy, how these are both affected by COVID-19, how decisions by the leader of Indonesia, Jokowi, are impacting individual Indonesians, and how Indonesia's role exporting huge amounts of migrant labor has been affected by the global closure of borders. We'll also discuss the role of religion in Indonesia and how that has been influenced by COVID-19. For more conversations like this, you can go to our podcast, The Arts of Travel. We're on Apple, Android, and Spotify. We've been doing wall-to-wall coverage of how COVID-19 has impacted Asia. You can find recent interviews with guests from The Washington Post, The LA Times, New Narrative, The Guardian, and other publications on how Asia's been impacted by the coronavirus on our podcast. And for our main website, go to asiaarttours.com. We have great articles, interviews, and perspectives from artists, activists, and academics throughout Asia. All right, here's our conversation with Mita on COVID-19 in Indonesia. Part two will be out later this week. Aria Danaparamita. I go by Mita, um, and I'm a researcher. I research a lot of things, but I'm interested in public policy, but also from a more sort of critical analytical perspective, um, thinking about uh, decolonization in particular. And so what we're going to be focusing mostly today on is Indonesia and questions both as it relates to COVID-19, um, but also questions about Indonesia generally. Um, and I think it's helpful to sort of think about and analyze the lenses itself through which we view Indonesia. And so how most people who who, uh, don't speak uh, Bahasa Indonesian would interact with Indonesia or the myriad of other languages where you'll see media coverage locally is through foreign media, which, which in my case would be English language coverage of the region, oftentimes through Britain uh, or Australia. Uh, and their press. So I wanted to ask very um, broadly, and you can go in this question however you'd like, what are the main differences that you see and are important to understand um, in the foreign perception or media coverage of Indonesia or figures like the current leader, Jokowi, and domestic perception or media coverage? And what would be important to note in terms of biases, misconceptions or where you see really sharp divides in this coverage of foreign domestic in Indonesia? So I think when we're talking about foreign versus domestic media, it's important to understand, you know, how how their audiences, objectives and characteristics differ. 
And I think that you'll see this, um, it's not specific to COVID coverage, but in any coverage um, between foreign and domestic media, you'll see differences in the, the levels of, well, first in what they choose to cover, but also in the levels of analysis. So I think with regards to foreign media, um, there's a tendency to obviously um, sort of pick the most interesting or sensational topics. Um, and this is, I think, you know, part of the structure of, of the industry, um, because they have to be covering what's most interesting to a foreign audience. Um, and so you, you'll see a tendency to uh, pick, like I said, the most sensational angles, and there's a, there, there will be an inevitable generalization that happens um, in how they talk about the issues and the level of analysis. At the same time, what they do offer is a more, um, I guess, uh, a bird's eye overview of what's happening, including, uh, you know, a, a more structural analysis, I guess, of the issue. So they're not just looking at uh, an event or like a statement by a public official, but they'll contextualize it um, within the broader, you know, political uh, situation or um, other structural issues. Um, so at the same time uh, with foreign media, uh, you do get, um, there are moments where, uh, like I said, it can be quite sensationalized. I think, um, a few weeks ago, we saw uh, that video, I think it was ABC Australia saying that, um, well, Indonesia, is, it's a catastrophe, people are dropping dead on the streets, which, you know, it's, it's true, there, are, there have been people who have collapsed on the streets, um, but that is by far not, you know, a, I wouldn't say that that's a fair representation of what's happening here. But that, that was what was shown in the videos, and there was no further sort of elaboration um, or context to that. Um, at the same time, like you see publications like Reuters um, and others who have been able to offer a more, uh, like I said, a more context and structure to these uh, stories. So I think Reuters published uh, an article on not just what's been happening with uh, the government's response, but the context of Indonesian healthcare systems and how it's ready um, or whether it is ready to handle COVID. So, you know, there's, there's positives and negatives um, there. With regards to domestic media, um, again, because of the nature of the industry, because of its audience and its objectives, um, what you will see is, uh, you know, everything's a lot more rapid, I guess. Um, you know, like an event will happen or a statement will be made and then it gets published uh, on the same day. And often these articles are very short. There's not room for context or analysis. Um, and so you, you get, you know, it's just a different pace, I guess, and a different way to present the story. Um, with regards to domestic media, I think at the beginning, um, they're very critical of the Minister of Health, Tarawan, um, with his handling of the crisis. But since he'd been sort of pulled back from the public stage and we've, you know, the government's now appointed a different spokesperson for COVID, um, generally the media coverage has just been kind of, you know, republishing what President Jokowi or the COVID spokesperson, um, what they've been saying at pressers, for example. But, you know, these tend to be generally, I would say, uncritical with the exception of some like Tirto or Asumsi, who have been able to offer some independent analysis 
Um, so I guess I would say that, that that's kind of the landscape of the media coverage that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And for media itself, um, I think for Americans, I'm not entirely convinced of the argument of um, some of the people who make it, but I think it's interesting. And I do see it um, with much more veracity uh, and validity elsewhere that, you know, uh, someone who's well-educated, who lives in Jakarta, who, who works in, in an industry that is uh, high pain and um, what I'm alluding to is that they would be interested, uh, that they sort of see themselves as um, part of the whatever Indonesia's political project is. So they would probably read local or maybe even foreign media um, in terms of papers or whatever media that is sort of designed to speak to their class or political interests. In the U.S., you know, we would have and this, these are very broad stereotypes, sort of the New York Times for sort of East and West Coast uh, liberals or Democrats, Fox News for more East and West Coast conservatives, but um, also many people who might not engage with print media. In Indonesia, you know, we see these really interesting terms like buzzers. These folks who will bug you on social media will be very um, confrontational if you criticize certain topics or certain figures. Could you discuss a little bit within Indonesia what media consumption is like? And then in the middle of this pandemic, for many people, are they not getting their news through any of the, you know, these, these larger papers or these more connected to the capitalist class or high earning people? Would they be instead of getting their news maybe through a WhatsApp or through a Facebook? Could you break that down a little bit for us as it relates to Indonesia? Um, yeah, I think you're touching on some very big questions and uh, issues that we are seeing in Indonesian media and how it's changed in the last few years. Um, I think your, you know, your analysis is pretty much correct in that obviously media consumption will differ based on uh, your class, um, level of education, uh, where you live, uh, the kinds of people that you interact with on a daily basis. So, so all of the all of those aspects uh, influence where somebody would get their information from. With regards to media, I guess what we would call um, the industry, so not just print, but also TV, online media. In Indonesia, what you've seen in the last, I guess, 20 years is a, it's a move towards um, consolidation, I guess, of, of power and of capital. So now you're seeing a lot of groups um, you know, me these media groups like MNC Group, Compass Group, um, with the different publications underneath them, but they're all controlled by the same uh, person and by the same shareholders, um, which is, I think, probably something that people are more used to uh, in the West, you know, these sort of media oligarchies. But I think in Indonesia, this, this has been, you know, a, a a newer trend, um, but that's just—it's newer just because you know prior to '98 we didn't really have freedom of press, so you know it's, it's like the evolution is just a bit more uh, concise here. Um, so that's that's with the formal media industry, but then what you're also seeing is the rise of social media, which you see everywhere. But I think in Indonesia, particularly, um, what you have, what we have been seeing is uh, a 
I guess, an amalgamation of this social, the rise of social media and the political and capitalist class that you mentioned. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the buzzers. Um, so these aren't just people who, they, these aren't just trolls, right? They're not just, um, you know, being critical or whatever or annoying um, just because they wanted to, but these are actually funded by certain groups, um, including the government. So um, in Indonesia, you we've been seeing in the last uh, few years an increased use of these social media influencers and buzzers um, to be basically mouthpieces for the government. Um, some of them are obvious because, you know, they're kind of consistently spouting the same viewpoints as the government. Others are a bit less um, obvious. But what is true is that there, th this is a, a structured uh, operation. And I think there's been some, you know, media publication about, um, for example, in the case of narratives about West Papua, for example, where they've been able to trace how, how this sort of social media and buzzer operation uh, works through Facebook, through Twitter accounts. Um, so what you have is, you know, you've got these social media influencers who have been identified by the government and are used as their mouthpieces. And then you have this sort of network of smaller micro influencers who would then support their argument. And then you have these sort of, again, like smaller accounts, like on Twitter, for example, they might not have a few followers, but then they will then sort of jump in on those conversations and um, engage that way. And so it is, um, it is a very structured uh, and well-funded uh, machination that we're seeing. So I think we, in the social media space, uh, we are unfortunately not necessarily more independent from that political and capitalist influence. Um, and the same goes for uh, like networking applications like WhatsApp that you also mentioned. I mean, I think a big question or a big issue in Indonesia has been, you know, fake news and hoaxes that's, you know, that gets distributed through WhatsApp groups. Um, you know, it kind of spreads like, like wildfire there. Um, but again, some of these, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, fake news or I guess a, a certain slanted way of seeing uh, the facts, um, these aren't just, you know, trolls, but some of them are funded, organized um, campaigns, basically. So, yeah, um, so to, to put all that together, I think, this has been a challenge, I think, in terms of um, how Indonesians are able to receive information. And in fact, you know, the transparency of that information in the first place, because it's um, so heavily influenced by the political and economic uh, elite. Could you sort of walk us through what's been your opinion as to, at this point, how Jokowi has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic and where might we see sharp differences, if any, between your opinion and what someone might see on a Facebook or someone might read in the paper? In terms of President Jokowi's response, I think I share the same opinion of many people out there who have been watching the outbreak happen since the days when it was you know, first announced in Wuhan and seeing what... I would say our failures of the Indonesian government in preparing for its eventual spread to Indonesia. Um, 
and I think in, in this particular case, I think it's it's pretty much, I would say is a pretty mainstream opinion that the that the president and also the Minister of Health have been underestimating the scale of this pandemic um, and have not been at all preparing. In fact, you know, like even in February, they were still making jokes about it. They were still trying to get tourists to come to Indonesia, um, basically in complete denial of what would be inevitable. Um, I think my criticism of how the this current administration is handling the pandemic is very much tied to my general criticism of how this administration is um, who they are and how they're functioning, which is that um, under Jokowi, particularly in his second term now, um, we're seeing uh, a much larger centralization of power and a significant reduction of transparency. Um, and so you see this in, in policies that have been made and in obviously the draft omnibus law and job creation, that's this massive bill. And basically um, in, in a lot of these policies, you're seeing the central government under Jokowi seizing more power um, from the ministries and from the local governments. And so that's what you are seeing now with the COVID response is that it's, it's highly centralized, you know, only, uh, I think the term is like, you know, only approved authorities are, you know, able to, for example, announce test results. With regards to lockdown policies and quarantines, only the central government and the Minister of Health is able to approve these policies. So, um, yes, I think what we're seeing is now both the sort of centralized power and lack of transparency has been very detrimental in how Indonesia has been preparing for and is currently responding to the outbreak. And so within Indonesia itself, um, the most of the reporting I've turned to for things like stats is I find nerds who even if they're, you know, I look, I look to nerds for stats. I look to um, people who are critical of capital and also maybe concerned about the way things are trending globally for these other larger questions where I also have my own opinions. But in terms of stats, in terms of sort of um, technocratic expertise, what do we know about the spread of uh, COVID-19 at this moment in Indonesia? How widespread do we estimate the pandemic is? And um, perhaps more importantly for the day-to-day -day lives of Indonesians, how is healthcare holding up at this moment? Yeah, I think data has been one of the biggest challenge uh, in assessing how this pandemic and it, the response, um, how effective it is in Indonesia. Um, in terms of how widespread is it, is it uh, the short answer is we don't know because we haven't been testing. Um, and we also don't know how long the virus has been within Indonesian borders. And of course, that influences how many cases there are and the rate of spread. Um, so the government, you know, announced the first confirmed cases in early March. But um, in a recently published study, uh, experts at the University of Indonesia in their modeling calculated it from uh, at least February because hospitals had been reporting pneumonia or other COVID-like symptoms since February. Um, so even then, like, you know, when did the pen, when did the outbreak start in Indonesia? We have disagreement there in terms of the data. Um, 
What we do know is that currently there are now confirmed cases in every single province. So geographically, it's widespread, and we'd already we've lost the chance to contain the virus uh, in the hotspots like Jakarta, Bali, or Batam. Um, in terms of the data, uh, there are widely varying figures out there. Um, I think uh, the official Ministry of Health data as of yesterday, so what is that, 15 April, um, there's just over 5,000 confirmed cases and 469 dead, um, which, you know, many, many people, myself included, um, have argued is uh, very much an underreporting and an under, as a result of under-testing. In terms of projections, there are also widely varying figures so the National Intelligence Agency, or BIN, released their figures, which is that they think it's going to be just over 100,000 cases by the end of July. To contrast that, the experts at University of Indonesia that I mentioned earlier, in a, um, in a study commissioned by BAPANAS, which is the National Development Planning Agency, um, they modeled that there would be nearly 2.5 million cases by the end of April. So you can see how even even when you're talking about uh, the numbers, um, there's such such a wild variety of them out there. Um, so this vast difference, I think, reflects just our complete lack of data, but also um, points to what is a, I think, a very thinly veiled political will to not test and to make the numbers look good, basically, to protect the government's reputation and their handling of the crisis. Um, so, yes, I think a problem is that testing has been slow and testing has been limited. Part of this is due to that centralization of power that I alluded to earlier, where, you know, initially only a very small number of laboratories are allowed to process COVID tests. Now the government has been, you know, trying to add more and more labs uh, onto that list. but. At the beginning, it was definitely not enough. Um, according to the official Ministry of Health data, they've only tested some 33,000 people up to yesterday in a country of, what, 250 million? Um, so yeah, we, we are definitely under-testing and uh, under-reporting the cases. In terms of your last question, how is Indonesian healthcare holding up? Yeah, not well. <laughs> And um, it's actually very bleak. Um, and in fact, the farther out you go from Java and the capital, it's even bleaker. Um, I think, but this is something that we've all known, uh, even without a global pandemic, the healthcare system is struggling. Um, you know, there, you know, this ties into debates like a few months ago about um, our healthcare system more generally, including our, because Indonesia does have universal healthcare through BPJS uh, system. So about how that system has been struggling and uh, to handle all the caseloads even without this pandemic. So yeah, basically, broadly speaking, there are just not enough hospitals that could cater to patients and especially critical care patients. Um, yeah, there are just not enough uh, facilities out there. And in fact, in the entire easternmost part of Indonesia, so that's Papua, the islands like Maluku, um, 
they all have that entire region has to share one type A hospital, which is, you know, the highest level of hospital uh, accreditation out there. So this the this situation has always been concerning, and this is the reason why uh, so many local governments, especially in Papua and West Papua, have been pressing for stronger lockdowns early on because they are genuinely scared um, for people there because they know that they don't have um, the facilities and the healthcare staff to cater to this level of pandemic uh, if it enters there, which it now has. Um, so I think in terms of the figures, uh, I think according to the WHO and other data out there, Indonesia has 2.7 critical care beds per 1,000 people um, and only 0.4 doctors per 1,000 people. So that's that's not a lot of critical care beds and not a lot, enough of uh, doctors who are able to take care of people. And that's, that's just doctors in general, right? Not even lung specialists. Um, so, and even, and now, you know, we're, you know, assuming that the outbreak started in, I guess, February or early March, we're a few weeks into it, and already doctors and other healthcare workers have fallen from COVID at a high rate, just because of the protective equipment crisis, which, you know, we're, we're seeing in other countries too, not just Indonesia, but I think um, in Indonesia, especially, uh, you've got doctors, nurses, sanitation workers, you know, using these flimsy raincoats, garbage bags for protection. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of the healthcare system, Indonesia had never been equipped to respond to a pandemic at this scale, and it is genuinely concerning. There's a lot of hidden violence, I think, that we'll unfortunately have to touch upon that's, that's being brought to the surface by this um, crisis and a lot of the brutality of political projects like a Boris Johnson, a Scott Morrison, uh, a Donald Trump, a Shinzo Abe, um, and I think unfortunately a Jokowi, which normally could be camouflaged by um, dashing smiles and uh, photo ops, um, are being very nakedly revealed in this moment of carnage. Um, so to, to highlight that a little bit and, and move out of the abstract and to, to discuss something that's really disturbed me. So um, the uh, governor of Jakarta, Anias uh, Baswedan, has, has talked about and, and really had to fight. And we see this strange, strange parallel elsewhere. And I'll talk about Japan just because I, I, um, I think it's an interesting contrast. Uh, the um, uh, mayor of Tokyo has had the same fight with Shinzo Abe's government, where in Indonesia, for Jakarta, Anias Baswedan, and this is my understanding, and you can add nuance or completely disagree, I'll leave it in, even if I look dumb, <laughs> has really had to struggle with uh, Jokowi's federal government. Again, sort of similar to uh, Donald Trump with uh, governors in the United States, where uh, uh, Baswedan has said, we need a lockdown, we need to stop movement, we need to social distance, and Jokowi has claimed, and at this point, having read about Jokowi enough, I don't take anything he says at face value. Um, I think he's an incredibly disingenuous political figure. But as said, essentially, he doesn't want to do that. Um, these strong uh, social distancing, lockdown uh, measures, because of the adverse economic impact it would have on the poor, 
So I'm wondering if you could highlight a bit about where there might be um, disingenuousness or perhaps validity to what Jacoby's saying. And if so, why do we see this, um, this very strong disagreement, it sounds like, not just with Jakarta and the federal government, but other regions, it seems like, who also want a more strongly enforced lockdown? Why is it Jokowi pushing instead for this more haphazard, more sort of muted response? Right. So I, I think maybe I'll respond in two parts. One, to discuss, you know, the sort of local versus central government uh, response. And then the second part kind of, you know, touching on some of the issues you brought up, which is, um, you know, how, you know, this sort of push and pull between uh, apparently the health of the of people and the economy, uh, which, of course, is a false dichotomy. Um so on the on the first part, um, I think you are, you are right. Uh, the Jakarta governor Anis Baswedan um, was pushing for some sort of lockdown in Jakarta from the early days of when the outbreak was first reported in early March. Um, unfortunately for him, the legal infrastructure just wasn't there to allow him to do that. Um, Indonesia has a health quarantine law that would enable this policy, you know, a lockdown or some sort of, you know, limitation on economic activity and travel to occur. But the central government and the ministries just hadn't gotten around to enacting the implementing regulations for that law. Um, so that finally came uh, from the Minister of Health Regulation number nine of 2020 on large scale social limits or social distancing on the 3rd of April. So that's a month, like a whole month after the first cases were announced. Um, so I think this, again, points to something that I, you know, was talking about earlier, which is, it comes down to the ca characteristic of this current administration under Jokowi, which is this centralization of power. Um, even under this current regulation, only the Minister of Health can approve a lockdown a local lockdown policy. So um, local governments, whether municipalities or provinces, aren't able to basically take the measures they might want or see necessary to protect uh, their citizens. What Anis had been doing, which is, I think, quite smart given the limitations of his power, uh, you know, even before this official lockdown was implemented, so Jakarta officially entered into lockdown on the 10th of April, but even for the few weeks prior to that, you know, Anis has been releasing um, governor's announcements, letters, you know, sort of urging people to stay home, to limit uh, mass gatherings, including religious gatherings, mass prayers, that sort of thing. He um, sent kids home from school, so things like that. So he, he has been able to... I guess, implement a pseudo lockdown um, without an official lockdown being in place, which I think is kind of, you know, he's, his hands are, were a bit tied there. And this is the struggle between the local and central government is something that, you know, has been constant under this administration and something that is continuing um, to date. Uh, Ten areas, so that's municipalities, regencies, or provinces, have gotten central approval for a lockdown policy or this uh, large-scale social limits policy. Um, so with regards to the second aspect of your question, which is about 
uh, you know, the economy. <laughs> um, I think as you see everywhere, quote, the economy is an argument that's been used to reject lockdowns. Um, and I think you mentioned that, you know, Jokowi had been at least publicly using, it's like, well, let's think about the poor, how they will be affected by a lockdown. But I mean, I think it's not cynical. I think it's just uh, factual to say that really what he's more concerned about is the impact not on the poorest of the society, but on shareholders, on investors who would be pulling out of Indonesia if they think the country will collapse. Um, and I think you're seeing this everywhere, you know, the U.S. especially, where you've got workers who are still forced to go into work and to generate profit for these shareholders, even though they're putting their lives on the line. Um, so you're seeing that still in Indonesia, like even now with the lockdown policy um, there, it doesn't apply to all sectors. So there are still eight sectors that are exempt from this policy. And this is allowing some companies, uh, factories to basically, yeah, um, force their workers to still come into work, um, even in such a sort of uh, heightened risk scenario like this pandemic. Yeah, I, I think I think um, this tension between sort of a socially conscious and community-driven lockdown policy has not been able to be implemented in Indonesia because of one, the sort of centralization of authority, um, and two, just a um, much more priority and focus uh, put on shareholders, investors, um, rather than the health of the lowest. Um, class of society. Um, I think what might be different in Indonesia compared to um, other countries like the US where the same that same dynamic is taking place is that in Indonesia it is true that uh, a large portion of the economy is informal. Um, so we're talking about warungs like small shops, street vendors, ojek drivers who are living hand to mouth and would be risking their livelihoods uh, and their families' livelihoods if people stop going outside, people stop buying from these street vendors and from these warongs. So there is there is an argument there. Um, but of course, I, I think it's a very lazy argument um, that really only highlights the failures of public policy in, in this capitalist economy, right? Because these problems aren't just here because of a lockdown. These problems have always been there. You know, these warongs, these street vendors, these object drivers have always been vulnerable. Um, even without a lockdown policy in place. So really what, you know, I think it's unfair to say that, well, lockdown will threaten their livelihoods. Not exactly, because they've always been at risk. Um, and our failure has been to, uh, in failing to provide them with the necessary support to continue their lives uh, generally, and especially during a lockdown. Um, so the poor have always been at risk. The system has always been broken. Um, the lockdown just kind of, uh, brings that to the forefront. Broadly speaking, what are some of the contradictions of religion at this moment in Indonesia that have interested you? Um, yeah, I think that's a good uh, point to raise in the context of Indonesia specifically, where religion, but especially Islam, uh, plays a very strong role um, in politics, but also in at the grassroots level. Um, I think people do look to religious leaders uh, for... Um, advice, but also for direction um, in terms of what, you know, what should I do in this situation? Um, I think on the bright side, though, uh, 
we are seeing the Indonesian Alamak Council or the MUI, the MUI, um, actually stepping up in that they're saying that, you know, in the context of Mudik, so when they uh, people generally go back to their hometowns at the end of Ramadan, they're saying that for you to do that at this time would be haram. Um, they have stepped short of, you know, issuing a fatwa to say that, but, you know, figures within the MOE, including the current Vice President Maruf Amin, who, you know, is the uh, leader of MOE, um, you know, they have made these statements uh, saying that uh, for you to do that as a Muslim right now, you know, that would be haram because you would be, uh, you know, doing harm to other people. Um, so I think that's been good. Uh, I think it's also been good to see, uh, you know, at more local levels, um, religious leaders kind of supporting efforts at social distancing, um, you know, saying that, hey, it's okay for you to be praying at home at this time, that like you don't have to go to Friday prayer. Um, with Ramadan coming up also, like you don't have to do um, tarawih prayers, which are usually um, done at the mosques. Um, every night during Ramadan, but you can do that at home. So I do think that uh, in in handling a, a pandemic such as this, I think, you know, everybody needs to uh, take part, I guess. And if they're doing so in a positive way, then I support that. Um, of course, I have, you know, my personal attitude with, with, with regards to organized religion that, um, you know, I'm not going to start supporting the entire structure of it. But I think in terms of specific actions that they can take and that, in fact, in Indonesia, they have taken um, to uh, prioritize public health, I think has been very positive, actually. Globally, we've seen capitalists going to capital. To quote Edward Onwiso, one of the few writers I really like in the U.S., the mask is fully off, at least in the area he covers, which is Silicon Valley, meaning that you know, any pretense of sort of noblesse oblige or the the CEO as stakeholder in society, that was always uh, a false dichotomy. And it's incredibly true at this moment where wealth really does dictate if you can uh, avoid this pandemic, uh, but also how your greed is, is exacerbating and causing governments to essentially introduce these large-scale policies that will harm the vast majority of society for the, to continue the accumulation of wealth for a very small group of individuals. In Indonesia, there's huge amounts of labor that's exported. Human capital is a huge part of Indonesia where throughout the region, uh, migrants might go and work. Um, in Taiwan, we see a lot of caretakers who are from Indonesia, for example. In Singapore, we might see a lot of day laborers um, who are Indonesian. For um, Indonesia itself, does it have the ability to, if it wanted, um, if, it, if, it was, if it had the political wherewithal, and does it have the political wherewithal to demand of the capitalist class, look, we, we're going to do policies that are not neoliberal anymore. This is a, a pandemic. I know you really like your Ayn Rand. We've translated it. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how prevalent Ayn Rand is in Indonesia, but um, we're. I'm sorry. We're not going to be neoliberals for a moment. This is a, a true crisis that causes us to face our humanity. Would Indonesia have the capacity to to roll out sort of uh, a massive 
social response that took care of the poor, and for these migrants, these day laborers, how does it also expose for foreign capital how it's relied on the exploitation of Indonesians for the social reproduction of a place that is quite wealthy um, per capita, like a Singapore, like a Taiwan? I think, again, I would probably respond in two parts. So one talking about Indonesia and the sort of whether, you know, there's likelihood of a, a true social response to this. Um, and then move on to talk of, talking about migrant labor in other countries. Um, so the short answer is no. I don't think uh, Indonesia has the political will. Uh, sorry, I should say whether this current administration has the political will to enact the necessarily widespread social support and aid that is currently needed to handle a pandemic of this scale. I think people, like you say, capitalists are going to capital. <laughs> and I think that's definitely the case uh, in this current administration. Um, you've got, I mean, Jokowi himself was a businessman. Um, his right-hand man, Luhut Panjaitan, is a businessman who, and, you know, a mining magnate. Um, palm oil too, so like massive uh, um, business interests. Uh, the DPR, the legislative body, um, is you know composed of businessmen. Um, so, in terms of who their priorities are, it is money, it is capital, it's not really the people. Um, I think that what is an important distinction to make, however. Um, is the difference between Indonesians, so everyday Indonesians, and the government. I think in terms of the sort of um, social support, community-based, mutual aid kind of ethos, that's very strong, I think, in the grassroots level. Um, I think when you get, especially when you get outside of the capital of Jakarta, um, you're talking about communities that are still very much organized around villages, um, around customary traditions. Um, so in terms of supporting communities, I think, I think that is very much present at the grassroots level. In terms of how it translates nationally, however, um, I think we uh, cannot divorce this from history, um, which is that there is a very specific and deliberate uh, effort to literally kill off all the leftists. This is what happened in the 60s, um, 65 and 66, with the mass uh, killings of not only communists, but anybody who was identified as leftists. Um, so I think Indonesia today and the neoliberal, like the hyper neoliberal uh, administration that we have today is a direct result of those historical processes where, um, you know, when you do kill off, you know, literal individuals, but also political party systems um, and any kind of organizational systems that were in place to, I guess, channel these aspirations of the grassroots when all of that had been very deliberately and meticulously erased, what you are left with is where we are today, basically. No, I have very, I have very little hope that um, the trajectory is going to change under this administration. In terms of, you know, migrant laborers uh, abroad, I think, yeah, you're you very correct. Like, Indonesia does supply the bodies and the labor um, that enable the wealth and the comforts that people in Singapore, Hong Kong, or Malaysia might be enjoying. 
Um, you know, you're talking about domestic workers, but you're also talking about people working on fishing boats, um, people working on cruise ships, you know, all of these very vulnerable sectors, especially when you're talking about a global pandemic. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the, the st- structure that we have currently uh, as a result of, you know, centuries of colonization and then globalized capitalism is that you are going to have out like you said this sort of hidden violence and the outsourcing of violence um to the most vulnerable um you know i don't particularly believe in borders i don't think they should exist so i think uh obviously i i'm very much a proponent of you know accruing you know people should have rights uh, regardless of where they're from or what citizenship they have. Unfortunately, that's not the world that we currently live in. And so I think in the context of migrant workers, um, I mean, you're seeing, for example, I think Singapore, you know, they started moving the migrant workers into these camps. Um, and in Malaysia, I think I saw, was it like one city that, you know, all the migrant workers, not all the migrant workers, but some migrant workers were like tasked to like clean up markets and streets and garbage without protective equipment. So yeah, kind of what you mentioned, uh, this pandemic has kind of, yeah, uh, taken off the mask um, from the structures that are actually in place in order to extract um, wealth from the labor of these workers. Unfortunately, with regards to Indonesia specifically, we historically also do not actually support our migrant workers. Um, and in fact, in what I think is like a very shocking statement, um, Indonesia has said that to their migrant workers, look, if you feel safe there, stay there, don't come home. This statement is in direct contrast to what Foreign Minister Retno Marsudi said just a few weeks ago when you know she said that, you know, Indonesians abroad, like, come home, like, we love you, come back, uh, we'll protect you here sort of thing. But apparently that does not apply to migrant workers. So... Yeah, I think I think it definitely this pandemic has shown how globally speaking, um, who are the most vulnerable uh, in our societies and how these uh, violences uh, extend across borders and into the homes of these people, of, of people of middle and upper class people in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia and elsewhere. Mm-hmm.